0: Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. 30 years ago this summer, Spike Lee effectively changed the landscape of American cinema with the release of his classic gut punch of a movie, Do the Right Thing. As big fans of the movie, we thought it was the right time to show some love to Spike and take a closer look at Do the Right Thing. We want to address up front that as white men, there are clearly aspects of the movie that we will never experience in the same way that non-white audiences experience the film. We're going to try to honor those perspectives by not speculating or trying to imagine what people who are not white men might think of the movie.
1: Do the Right Thing debuted at Cannes Film Festival to pretty universal praise. Critics were floored by the energy and audacity of Spike Lee's hard-hitting movie. Its release that summer saw a decent box office draw and an unsettling blend of critical praise and straight-up racist criticism that expressed fear that black people would riot after watching the film. Nevertheless, Spike Lee became the hot new filmmaker, and the film's success even generated an unfortunately short-lived mini-boom of black filmmakers funded by major studios. As with many truly groundbreaking films, Do the Right Thing was not nominated for Best Picture, though it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello. 30 years later the film is more relevant than ever and in the last 10 years the film has seen a definite resurgence as people are really only now beginning to understand the impact the film has had does all this
0: mean do the right thing is perfect
1: no but it is probably twice as good as nearly every other movie that came out in the last 30 years keep listening
2: Yo, Mook. Mookie. What? How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, huh? And you. Hey, don't stop yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some say. You're looking for trouble? Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? you making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. You're going to be a ball breaker.
1: That is... Bugging out, played by the nearly unrecognizable <laughs> Giancarlo Esposito, also known as Gus, Gustavo Fring. Gus yeah. Fring, yeah, from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen season three mm-hmm. of Breaking, Better Call Saul, talking to uh, Danny Aiello, the Sal, the owner of uh, Sal's famous pizzeria, pizzeria, uh, as Sal says, <laughs> right. and uh, setting up more or less the main inciting incident mm-hmm. if we're going to be using
0: english terms right. following the plot diagram the inciting incident right. is that maybe the lack of cheese on the pizza right which wasn't in the clip but precedes right before the, that, uh, the picture sound needs to put more cheese on this pizza yeah according to Buggin Out, and not charge two dollars for it yeah but yeah you're right it's actually more the latter part it's, it's, it seems uh, to be more of the pictures and uh that i
1: mean we could unpack that scene oh, sure. probably a lot you and, know
0: you know what's interesting about that scene is giancarlo esposito is actually half Italian, half African American. Oh, really? Yeah, like his dad is from Italy. His mom is African American. Interesting. So he embodies an extra in that layer. Character. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's like, fascinating. So his dad is like full on from Italy. Huh. His mom was like an opera singer um, who was like in Italy. Wow. And, and actually, he was born in Italy. Wow. And then they moved to America. Holy cow. There's a whole yeah Wikipedia him. It's a really he's a fascinating dude. Who oh, knows man. if Spike even you know knew that when he cast him or right, not? But right. I don't know who knows. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's a
1: there's so much to talk about with this movie. I mean, I don't think Nate we have talked about a movie off mic ever At, before we record. And tonight, we spent a fair amount talking. And I think we both felt comfortable doing that because we know... There's still
0: plenty there to talk about. so much to talk There's, about with this yeah, movie. We, we, we talked for, what, you said, like a half hour or so? Probably. We didn't even hit anything I have in my notes no, or anything. Neither. So, uh, yeah. And, and so, a couple other things about this. Uh, you know, So, 30 years, we got the right. anniversary going. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a Spike Lee movie yet. Right. And, you know, both of us, I think... Highly respect him as a filmmaker, yes. um, not just for Do the Right Thing, but nope. a handful of other movies that we've seen of his. Definitely. And I just think it's worth mentioning that you have seen this a ton because you teach this every year yeah, for your yeah. class. I think that's Twice worth mentioning yeah. because this is also a movie that you, I don't know, would you say this is a movie you've maybe seen like the most of movies you've seen? <laughs> that's a stupid way to put it. Like, yeah, no, I understand. You know, like the movies you've seen the most. Is this up there for you?
1: Uh, Charlotte's Web is getting up there <laughs> as it's one of my son's favorites now. Yeah. Um, it's getting up there. It's it's one of the ones I've seen the most. It was a busy week. I went back to work. School's starting uh, this week. And uh, I toyed with the idea of not watching it. Oh, you can't do that. I know I can't do that. So okay, I did it. Good.
0: But I mean, even just for tradition's sake. You oh, can't I know. Mess there were so
1: many reasons that I. I you would really I, mess up I the mojo of this show. I know. Show I know. I know. That. The break really made me lazy. Uh, well, by the way, welcome back. We yeah. Welcome back, break. everyone. Hope you guys um, enjoyed your July part of the summer. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so yes, I've seen this movie a lot. We're tipping our hands. This is not necessarily like a debate uh, as to whether or not this is a good movie or do we like it. But I think the movie itself just has so much to talk about. So there's a laundry list of reasons we're doing this movie. Uh, One of the sadder reasons is that the violence in the movie is... More common now than I think it was
0: in 1989. Or at least just more or, aw- or more aware. Yes, we're, we're more aware. aware of it. That's probably um, a, a more accurate thing but, to say. But as far as relevance and, and timeliness goes, during our break, while we were asking our listeners to uh, watch this, we heard the news that Daniel Pantaleo, the New York police officer who murdered Eric Garner... By a chokehold. By we're a chokehold, was not going to see justice like with the Garner family was not going to see justice. He was not going to be put on trial. Right. Um, there was, there's not going to be a trial and he is still working for the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, not a damn thing has changed. On top of send her home chance. Oh yeah. Yeah. The El Paso shooting. Just generally and, speaking, racism I mean, is alive and well. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: And being, yeah, yeah. And being uh, excused and explained away. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this, this, movie more than I think any movie I've ever seen addressing race does the opposite of explaining away. It to a degree further complicates the conversation. Yeah,
0: it kind of it leans into it. By being one of the
1: more honest and broadly scoped movies in its vision and the questions it raises. And this movie is almost all questions, which makes it infinitely uh, dissectable and also infinitely important because you I think we, we are very aware that the 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 frame of reference here is a black man from New York City saying, these are the questions that come to my mind when I think about racism and I think about my reality. So when communities that are being oppressed tell us what the questions are that they have, we should probably look into those questions.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess come to those questions on their terms. So actually what maybe maybe what we should do is uh before we get too deep, back up just a little. Sure. And uh, I don't think we're going to necessarily need to do the whole star rating thing, because I'm nah. pretty sure this is a five-star yes. for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, though, it might be worth asking, was it always a five-star? Second of mm-hmm. all, what was that first experience like? Mm. And before uh, we jump right into that, it should be noted that we are drinking Miller High Life right now. Right. A drink that was kept the from the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're drinking the beer that he couldn't have. They were asking him a lot. Um and also it it was a decently a hot enough day today. Um, yeah, it's but, been a hot week, right? But you know, just for the feel of it, I made sure to crank the furnace yeah. up so we're sitting in a hundred. And you've degree, got, uh, heat I see right three
1: space heaters. Yeah, is there one behind you too? Uh,
0: yeah, that's that's a space heater. Oh, that's the fourth. Okay, so yeah. we've got so four, four space, space heaters, heaters. So it is hot. It is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. I, that was my best. That was a attempt good, Mr. To... Senior Love Daddy. <laughs> We've got good. the mic, so I felt like I should give it a shot. But I've got a
1: tank top on. Mm-hmm. You had a tank top on. Now you're just wearing a pizza apron and your yes, shorts. Right.
0: Anyways, just wanted to make sure it's we a good set, look. We set the mood whether right. or not I would trust a pizza you made. That's a that's not that's <laughs> right. not even a question. Good thing I'm not making pizza, and instead we're doing a yeah, podcast. That's right. So, with all of that said, uh, what was your first time watching this movie i think it was hmm here's a question it was not was there a it, first time it was yeah,
1: <laughs> i have never seen this movie <laughs> i've read a lot though no i had seen well actually 25th hour was one of my first like spike lee movies hmm. that i really loved I thought- then i kind of learned more about spike lee through that i watched malcolm x and just kind of got into Spike Lee a little bit, but I had never heard of Do the Right Thing, really. And then um I just was like, oh, I should I should watch that movie. And Wait, is this like
0: uh, post-college? Is this like two thousands? Yeah, this is like, like
1: right no, this is this is probably like two thousand seven or two thousand eight. I saw it and I just thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And my main like compare point of comparison as far as movies about race go was crash. And I was like, this is so good Mm -hmm. and it just totally highlights how horrible crash is (laughs) and i remember one of my former professors in a class about like race or uh, multicultural communications um showed crash in that class and i i went to her and i was like have you seen do the right thing she was like, no. And I lent her my copy and I was like, you need to see this. Someone teaching race showing, at the college level who hadn't seen Crash. do the right thing. <laughs> and she watched it and she gave it back to me and she said, that movie is doing something different than I want to do. Oh boy. I was like, yeah, all right, yeah. well, okay. Not
0: enough <laughs> harmony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's and what so, it comes down to. Uh, so
1: yeah, I, I I was a very, like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's great. I did not fully and still don't fully understand the movie, but I, I definitely, looking back on what I felt like I understood about it, it wasn't even that I understood something. That was why I, re- I responded to it. I was just like, this movie is doing something um, really different.
0: Now, your class isn't one that's particularly about race. It's a film no. and philosophy class. So mm-hmm. what was it about your class that made you say, I want to make sure I show this to my students? Well, for one thing,
1: I, I I really try to make race and equity and like sexism, gender discrimination, that sort of stuff, a part of the conversation yeah. in all my stuff. But I end my year talking about political philosophy. And so the concept in political philosophy that I tried to like wrestle with was the idea of social contract. And typically you talk about that like citizen to citizen or citizen to government. What the social contract says, you break the social contract. Like that's often the case for um, not giving even ex-convicts a right to vote. Well, they broke they, the they, social contract. Their, yeah, they, they are out of the the uh, conversation. Um, and I turn it around and say, what's what what is what happens when the government breaks a social contract? Mm. And um what is the responsibility of a citizen? What is the right of a citizen to an institution that breaks a social contract? And um I think do the right thing approaches that because mm. um you've kind of got a society that is based on the fact that the social contract is broken on behalf of our government, towards a section of of its citizens. Mm-hmm. And that, you could say, is the underlying tension of do the right thing. That the social contract's broken and we're trying to figure out how to live together with that like uneven playing field. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's how I inserted that movie into... Uh, and I, I end up making the political philosophy largely about race.
0: Hmm, yeah. Um, so for me, um, when I came to do the right thing, I was not really aware of what I was about to get myself into uh, mm-hmm. when I watched it. Not my first Spike Lee movie, but it was pretty early on. I think the only other Spike Lee movie I had seen up until then was Malcolm X, and I love Michael- Malcolm X. Me too. You know, it was in that period we talk about often where I'm just trying to catch up with blind spots, and um, Do the Right Thing was one that occasionally would come up as an important fo- movie or a movie that... Um, you know, I, I was reading a lot of, like, Roger Ebert's film essays, right. and he definitely held this movie in super high regard and actually talked about it as one of the most memorable film experiences he had ever had that yeah. he'll never forget. And that was enough for me to say, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I watched it alone, got it from the library, and I'll tell you what what I was hesitant about with it, it had nothing to do with being afraid of what it was about, because I didn't know what it was about. Yeah, It was just that something about the title, something about the cover, something about the font, yep. it just looked dated to yeah. me. I mean, this was, I was watching, it was probably like 2007 as well for me. I, and later we can get into what, into how narrow my lens was. Because I had no idea what it was, I felt like it was going to be like an, an in-living color was my closest reference. <laughs> like, I just thought it was going to be like a urban comedy. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it and I was, you know, watching it through and I'm kind of like, yeah, this is a really entertaining movie because it is. It just kind of glides really well from vignette to vignette and every performance is great and every character is super memorable. Um, and I was just like, you know, I'm having a real good time watching this movie. And it is like I can see why people think it's great as far as the ideas because of the dialogue and how it can kind of treat these things a little bit lightly but go super deep. And then the riot scene happens and I'm like, Oh, shit. <laughs> like, it just escalates yeah. and escalates and escalates to the point where you get the little bit of a coda at the end and the credits are rolling and you got the Malcolm X and mm-hmm. Martin Luther King quotes. I was just floored and mm-hmm. stunned. And I'm like, okay, Ebert was right. that that, yep. is, that is more than just a good movie. That is an unforgettable important, experience when you watch movie, it. movie, yeah. For me as a
1: white person, having been trained by... One, white people, but also white Hollywood to expect an arc to movies about race where you expect the right thing to happen, mm-hmm. for somebody to do the right thing, for the mayor's speech to work, for everybody to go home and everybody to understand that it wasn't Sal's fault that the police killed Radio Raheem. As a white person expecting that to happen... Then Mookie Mookie, Mm -hmm. the guy you were trusting the whole
0: time. Not
1: bugging out, not the people, other people who we, you know, could look down on. Mookie throws the trash can, the floor drops out Mm -hmm. for I think it's not an exaggeration to say every white audience member. Yeah. Because everything that we as white people thought
0: we could count on. As far as what we knew of quote, important movies about race. This was what was supposed to happen in an important movie about race. Mm -hmm. Someone was going to reach some new realization. Somebody was going to make an inspired speech. There was going to be some kind of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I think at the time, within my narrow lens, what I remember of being alive at that time in 1989, I was a little kid. This is like white, rural Indiana. My circle was fully white, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like through and through. Mm -hmm. And so I had pretty, like, within that circle, what you could consider pretty progressive parents who would at least watch this stuff. <laughs> they watched Do the Right Thing. So you, like, have a memory of, in 1989,
1: Do the Right Thing?
0: I don't or have a 1990? memory. I have a memory not of Do the Right Thing, although I do think my parents watched it. I don't, I wasn't around when they watched it. I, sure. do, <laughs> I do have a memory of them watching Malcolm X and liking it. Mm-hmm. I have a memory of just... The pop culture's general feeling towards Spike Lee. Yes,
1: I remember that too.
0: I remember he was a like rabble rouser. Yes, and I remember even like you remember that show, The Critic, with Jay Sherman, uh, John Lovitz. It was like a Simpsons yeah. like cartoon, Spinoff, so. and they would do like fake movies, and and they would kind of like uh, parody directors, and Spike Lee was parodied at least once, if not a couple times, in that cartoon, and he was always seen as someone who was humorless, mm. um, who was angry and um was in his own way kind of like pretentious like in the parody it would always be like what i was trying to say in this movie is blah 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 blah," you know and like that that was all he made were just idea movies and and then also um i remember within my circles a sense that spike lee was racist against yes. white people yes. yeah definitely um and that and that we should be careful with his movies, yep. that they might be good, they might be well made, they might have some interesting ideas, but he's kind of racist towards uh, white people there
1: wasn't even there was no in my in my memory no talk of the quality of his work mm-hmm. that that was irrelevant. I would say in nineteen eighty nine my only experience with black
0: people was the Cosby show mm-hmm. and probably same here and i I actually did watch in Living Color, oh really uh, a lot yeah I, love- I was I was allowed to watch Simpsons. And in Living Color, I can't remember if it was grew up in very different houses. Uh, Yes, I I, like I said, my parents were kind of, uh, you know, for the time, I guess that would be considered kind of liberal. Absolutely,
1: Um, yeah. So my experience with black people uh, began with the Cosby Show and basically ended with um, car doors being locked in certain Mm -hmm. areas. Mm -hmm. Then, what uh, for me, Spike Lee gets kind of conflated with. The LA riots and the uh, uproar over gangster rap, mm-hmm. and to me, Spike Lee and Malcolm X got got mixed in there with all
0: of the alarmism of the, the the dangerous black men. That's interesting to think about too, because I'm with you where where I grew up. Malcolm X was someone you really were not supposed to really yeah, respect hallelujah. or see as even good information he was dangerous in most of white america that's the truth we like martin luther king yes he did it right he did it the right way malcolm x was the person who um was racist against white people yes and in some ways like i think from my viewpoint as like i was kind of brought up to believe that um he almost ruined the civil rights movement right we both grew up in that anyway okay so
1: on the rewatch i guess i don't know nothing's changed really like we just we continue to contemplate the movie more than anything digging a lot
0: more out and i'll I'll put it this way too so i feel like even since i first saw it back in you know mid-2000s i think we've just both made it a point to i don't know there's probably a better way to put it but i guess kind of do our homework like we've worked really hard to try to take that lens that we know is very narrow right. and just expand it, right. you know? And so I feel like... Well, I think even just acknowledge that whiteness is a lens. Exactly, <laughs> it's exactly. Thing. You know, and, and, and kind of speaking a little bit more to that, I had to realize that for me, I mean, this is a film podcast, just talking about my film lens, I had to realize over time how narrow it was, you know, mm-hmm. because why was it that it took me so long to realize that Do the Right Thing was an important movie? Because... Mm-hmm my lens growing up and saying i love film yeah. and thinking that i knew a lot about film and i had seen a lot of movies but my main lens growing growing up all the way up to maybe you could you could say when i went to college i was exposed to a lot more but all the way up to there my love of film and my idea of what good movies were came from like the oscars yep and then you had the hashtag oscars so white mm-hmm. so what does that tell you about your lens if that's your main lens sure. about what good movies are your lens is super white mm-hmm. and you know i had to kind of realize that when you start going through the movies that made an impression on me my like, i mean it's so white go through our archive in this podcast alone exactly. and it's super yeah. white yeah um and you know as a film lover there's only so much we can do about that but one of the things we certainly can do is make an effort to dig through i mean there there is a lot more i think black film than a lot of us would um no, on the surface so part of my homework has been just going back and yeah. digging through a lot of that stuff yeah. you know um and so i think this time around within these last two months rewatching do the right thing it's it's different it's a different experience only because I, i'm aware of that lens mm-hmm. and i'm realizing that a lot of the things that at the time and even still are considered provocative or rabble-rousing from spike lee are really just white people grappling with a different point of view yes
1: you're right. And we don't we don't talk about doing our homework to to, to garner credit or anything, but just exactly. to yeah, say yeah. that it's it's for white men, it is a long journey out of our lens.
0: Yeah. Um, and homework makes it sound like a chore, but it's only sure. been rewarding. Like I, I as agree. I've done Absolutely. it more, it's I not have, like it's I like I never want to stop, mm-hmm. you know, like this is how I want to continue to do things is to just keep on digging for these different viewpoints different voices because the cinema looks different yeah do the right thing we can even talk technically he certainly knows how to make a film as far as like the technicalities go of course but like his film looks unique it looks different right and we are better for having it you know for having that film language
1: yeah and that movie was made with an incredibly diverse crew which especially in 1989 and it's not much less true now was not the case on film sets that the unions kept people of color and women sure. out yeah. because they had been perpetuated based on their origin when basically anybody who could get a job was white and male. This movie employed Ernest Dickerson as cinematographer, who became a director in his own right. And uh, Ruth Carter was the costume designer mm. who just recently became the first black person ever to win best costume design mm. at the Oscars for Black Panther. For black Panther. Um, So he had not only in his own role as filmmaker, incredible proficiency, he brought people along who are some of the best in the business Mm -hmm. in 1989. And now are only finally receiving recognition with Ruth Carter, but this is all what's like happening for us as we're like thinking about this. So maybe we should now then kind of stick to the movie, like talk about the movie. Yeah. And I would say from the beginning, the movie starts off with the scene that I feel like I am most lost watching, which is the opening credits. The Rosie Perez dancing, dancing to fight the power. Yes. I feel like there's stuff happening there that I am just not aware of. Uh
3: huh. Uh-huh. While the black
2: band's sweating in the rhythm, i rolling. Gotta give us what we want. Uh. Gotta give us what we need. Hey, <laughs> our freedom of speech hey. is freedom of death. We, we got, got to fight, fight the powers that be. Hey. Fight the power. the power
1: the The one thing that i feel like i can identify is the bill cosby opening credits you kind of like an image of a brownstone but it's on a soundstage dancing to like jazz music or whatever um and to me that whole intro feels like a reference to that but then switches from the brownstone to like the back alley and under a bridge uh. and like kind of is saying like, okay, that's part of the black experience, but there's also this part. There's also this part. I w maybe, maybe this is a really dumb place for me to start the conversation because this is the part where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything about this. Um, but it feels like there's significance to the different sets, to the different costumes and to the different lighting schemes. And I think the lighting schemes, if I can identify them correctly, are red blue and natural light, which I believe you could say is white, white. light. So that there's like a red, white, and blue thing going on yeah, here. Yeah, Uh And the one where she's lit not in red and blue um, is the one where she's got the boxing gear on. I
0: mean, that's the thing with this movie is that's probably in there. Every piece of the movie is saying something. I mean, my my take on it was Fight the Power is the anthem for this movie. So from the get-go, you're just playing the anthem basically. Not quite. Okay. I mean yes
1: the yes and more literally than you know the music over the universal logo and then the 40 acres and a mule spike lee joint then the the movie's title is played on a single trumpet lift every voice and sing which is hmm, the okay. negro national anthem so the movie does start with an yeah. anthem <laughs> which I, I just and then make it gives it, way yeah. to sort of the new anthem lift yeah. every voice and sing gives way to fight the power
0: right now, I thought the coupling of that with a woman dancing, there's a sort of like an empowerment there, mm-hmm. um, which is not foreign to Spike Lee. I mean, She's Gotta right. Have It was his first premiere movie. Mm-hmm. And there's some boxing stuff in there, but there's also the dance moves are, are sexual. They're suggestive, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so there's just kind of everything wrapped into this opening scene. Mm-hmm. You've got the, the music. You've got the... You know, the sexuality there, you've got um, the, the politics is in there. Like it's just sort of like an encapsulation of like get ready, uh, which I think is kind of necessary because when you get to the movie and it starts, it's not like it's boring, but it does just kind of meander for a long time. Yeah. So if you didn't have this opening that was very much just like a a jolt or mm-hmm. just kind of like an an instant punch to the face, I, I feel like you you could think that you're in a different movie. Yeah, I guess like it kind of does say, hey, even though we're going to kind of meander in this community for a little bit, you need to be alert. Right after the song, it's an alarm clock, and then Mr. wake C. up, wake up, there yeah.
1: saying wake up. Yeah. yeah,
0: but but where I where I think you're right though, where it does seem a little confusing is that. It does just seem like it's kind of cherry picked out of the movie. Like Rosie Perez being a boxer A, right. dancing, dancing B, yeah. uh, being out in the street even, really. Yeah, it's true. Being outside of the apartment and away from Hector. Is all only in that scene.
1: Right. I What I say when I'm confused by that is I feel like there are things in there that I just really don't get. Like that, I lack the knowledge. Okay. Like, there's
0: things. Being are there dance? Yeah.
1: yeah, and are, or is there significance to the dance moves she's doing? Like, I don't know. Do those dance
0: moves have names? Is she, is that choreographed? Is she just making it up? Is there significance to the settings? For a lot of, especially white audiences in 1989, I think even just that song by itself yeah. would be like, this is. I, I don't know yes. what to do with this. Yeah. I don't know what to do with this. It you be know. racist. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. All right. And so you mentioned that the movie feels like meandering for a while. What do you, can you, can you expand on that a little bit more? Say something more about that? Like yeah, the, sure. The purpose I, so, of that or what you think? Oh, yeah. When, I don't, when and do I, you think it like finds its footing? Or
0: well, No, and, I, and it's there's nothing about it that's lost. That's one thing I'll say is I feel like the script is airtight. I agree. There's not a scene wasted here. Mm-hmm. Mandarin was actually a word used by the editor, Barry Brown, who edited Do the Right Thing, but also has gone on to edit a lot of Spike Lee's movies, even like Black Klansman uh, most recently. And this was actually his first movie he did with Spike Lee, though, uh, editing-wise. And that's the way he put it, because he felt like the script was super tight, but that is the purpose of the first part of the movie, is for you to just kind of move between these different characters, and you don't get the sense that it's going anywhere particular. Nothing bad about that. That's like actually very entertaining. And that's what makes, that's why I say the script is so tight because it can do that. And you don't feel bored. You're learning not only who these characters are, but you're learning so many little details about them. And you're also learning how they connect with one another, those little details that make them fully human. So that when something happens to them, you feel it. You know, it all meanders up to this point so that that point becomes some of the most intense filmmaking you've ever seen. It's so purposeful in what it's doing, it's all but it seems effortless when you're watching it.
1: Yeah, I agree, and it's a really unique way to make very flawed characters really like lovable. Mm-hmm. It's tough for me to talk about this movie not having seen it over a dozen times, you know, because like I love these characters. I love Bugging Out. I love pretty much every character to some degree. Uh, I don't recall whether I felt that the first time I watched it. But instead of like showing us reasons to love someone, he just shows them in pretty mundane interactions. Yeah. And that's a really unique thing to not telegraph why you should love someone because every character in the movie has flaws. Some of them very deep flaws, even contradictions. And it's like... Because of the way we've been introduced to them, we still have this sort of understanding and affection for them as people. Pino, John Turturro's character, might be the exception. But there are also times where I find him him. sort of endearing.
0: Yeah, I I always think about the scene where Mookie's talking to him about all of his favorite athletes, musicians, Mm -hmm. and how they're all black. And then he tries to explain why that's different.
2: It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean... Let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different.
0: You know, deep down inside, I think you
2: wish you were black. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that
0: mean? And you know what they say about dark Italians?
2: You know, I've been listening and reading. You have been reading now? I read. I've been reading about your leaders, Reverend Al, Mr. Do, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope
0: alive. That's fucked up.
2: Keep hope alive.
0: Hey, that's fucked. Don't talk about Jesse.
2: And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Farrahman, Farrakhan. Uh, Minister Farrakhan. Uh, sorry. Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when the black man will rise, we will one day... What does he say? We will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past? Yeah, that's right. What past are you talking about? I mean, what, what did I miss? We started civilization. Man, keep dreaming, man. Then you woke up. Pino.
0: For you to be able to watch that character say that and not just hate him... Yeah, that's true. ...is something. The character is written in such a way where... You're willing to let him work
1: out the idea. Yes,
0: and you're also willing to say, okay, you know, this is where he's at now. In that moment, it seems like he's kind of like at a loss for how to respond. Now, the thing that, again, by the end of the movie, you get the sense that whatever feelings he had towards black people is only going to be more entrenched now. Absolutely, you know, And, and and so that's where the movie doesn't let you off easy and doesn't let itself off easy.
1: Yeah, I think too, you're really getting a sense that. Kino has these racist ideas, but he also hasn't fully thought about them. Right. And it sort of exposes a lot of racism as inherited or absorbed mm-hmm. rather than really active. It doesn't make it any less dangerous. It doesn't make it okay. But it does help you see, to a degree, the difference between a person's racist ideas and
0: that person. I find that scene kind of brilliant in how Spike wrote it the level of him kind of digging into the mind of this racist character mm-hmm. and seeing him as a human being, yeah. um, you know, is one of those where now you look at those criticisms of the movie and you're just like, I can't believe how even handed this movie is. Exactly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. This movie's not racist. Right. In the least no. it's anti-racist yeah. and it is, you know, the most even handed look at race you're going to yeah. get, you yeah. know, what a tightrope it is that, Spike is walking and just how brilliantly he walks it. You know, there's obviously a lot about race here, but there's also a lot about social economics. There's a lot about, um, you know, capitalism. Capitalism, Exactly. I was just going to say, there's just a lot packed into this movie and it never leaves the street. Yeah, You
1: know, I was, I was looking more for the, the sort of capitalism angle because so Wesley Morris, a writer for the New York times, Mm -hmm and uh co host of the podcast, um, Still Processing, uh with Jenna Wortham. He wrote an article that completely changed the way I, I view Do the Right Thing. He he wrote about it, um in relation to Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy, Driving Miss Daisy, which won the Oscar for Best Picture um, the year that uh, Do the Right Thing came out. And I, I kind of feel like I need to reiterate, Do the Right Thing was not nominated for Best Picture. Like right. that's sort of it been a whitewashing in history. Right right. It didn't steal it, it do, the right do the right thing, thing there wasn't was no competition. Yeah. So he talks about the idea of employment being something that you cannot ignore when you talk about racial reconciliation. He calls them racial rec- racial reconciliation fantasies in Hollywood. Okay, so in Green Book, a white man and a black man become friends that white man's racism is cured. We are led to believe that, by extension, all racism is or can be cured by individual friendships be- between black and white people. Right. Uh, same thing with Driving Miss Daisy. Miss Daisy, this deeply rooted southern woman, Uh, deeply rooted in her racism becomes friends with her black driver and her racism is cured. He says, you cannot ignore the fact that there is employment happening there. And that idea of employment and money changing hands is something that I've paid more attention to as I've watched the movie the last few times.
0: Do the right thing. Watch that. movie. Do the
1: right thing. Yeah. Sorry. And it's interesting. My students will often say Mookie shouldn't have thrown the garbage can Because Sal was good to him. And he owed it to Sal as his boss not to do that. And Wesley Morris brings up the point that there's a level of disconnect between an employer and employee that you can't assume anything about that relationship. And um, what is interesting to me is that my students never bring up the fact that Sal only exists because the black community is paying him. Right. Go back
0: to the bugging out scene from the beginning
1: of this episode. Right, where he says we spend much money here. And Sal himself admits that in the scene with Pino.
2: Maybe we should sell this place. Get out while we're we're still ahead and alive. You really think you know what's best for us, Pino? Maybe we could... Couldn't we sell this and open up a new one in our own neighborhood? There's too many pizzerias already there. Then maybe, maybe we could we could try something different. What, what am I gonna do? What do I, that's all I know. What am I doing? I've been here 25 years. Where am I going? I'm sick of niggas. It's like I come to work. It's the planet of the apes. I don't like being around them. The animals. Why you got so much anger in you why are they worried? my friends they laugh at me they laugh right in my face they tell me go go to bedside go go feed the movies. do your friends put money in your pocket pino Fool on your table they pay your rent the roof over your head huh
1: and so in that moment sal is understanding we don't exist as a restaurant. We don't have a home. We don't have food without the money from this community. But for some reason, capitalism, we don't see the power in the laborers or the people. We only see that relationship going from the
0: owner of capital mm-hmm. to workers or to customers. Right. Well, and and, and there's an interplay there with freedom, right? Because yes. his whole idea is... You have the freedom to do what you want when you own a business. Yes. You can do what you want with your business when you do that. And that the idea of freedom in general in this movie feels like a slap in the face. Yes. When the, when, when the white Celtics-wearing guy- Clifton. Clifton says, I thought I was free to live wherever yeah, I wanted. It's, it's a free, free country. country. I don't remember exactly. And then it's just kind of like, oh. Yeah. And you feel it. You yeah. feel that that doesn't quite gel within the world of this movie.
1: Because not and long before that, Mookie says- it's a free country and and Sal says, What free? You want free? There's your free. Like yeah, points that's to right. doing, yeah. your, doing your job. That's yeah. your freedom.
0: Really, what Sal isn't understanding is that there is a balance to be had there between business owner and customer because the customer has their own freedom. Yeah. And that freedom, if you're not careful, it's someone taking a garbage can and throwing it through your window. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, he certainly had the freedom to do that. Yeah. You know, that was a freedom that the community had decided was not going to have consequence. And the cops are gone, right? Yeah. You know, they're scared. They're right. out of here. Right. You know. And so that whole idea of freedom within the business world only works within this fragile societal ecosystem that has the police enforcing the law right. and the customer standing in line and doing whatever the businessman says is the right yeah. thing. It only works one way.
1: Yeah. A a, a business, a corporation can enter and leave a community as much as they want with no regard for the well-being of the people that they are employing or that they're, yeah, they're moving in among or leaving behind. But as soon as consumers call for laws that call for
0: accountability for the corporations or in other words, that's inhibiting our freedom. In other words, fight the power. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The Um, anthem of this movie, you know. Right. Fight the powers that be. I think a lot of white people don't want to see Sal as that power. They don't want to see Sal as fighting the powers that be. Because you know, Spike Lee, providing layers upon layers of nuance, shows that that power doesn't always look like a maniacal, evil person. It looks like a person who maybe in his heart thinks he's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So two things that, for me, in a movie that is never easy, are still... Even less easy for me. The more I watch it, yeah. Oh, which, which one should I start with? So, what do you make of the fact that okay, Radio Rahim is choked to death by a police officer, mm-hmm. murdered, and Mookie, um, by Spike Lee's own admission, the reason he's throwing this garbage can in, um, is because he just witnessed his best friend being murdered, and the neighborhood is. Extremely devastated by this. That is when they they don't even care anymore. Like bring like burn Sal's down. What I think Spike Lee does that never makes anything easy is in the scene prior. If something hadn't happened, there's a very likely chance Radio Rahim would have murdered Sal. There is mm-hmm. no sense at all that he was going to stop strangling him, and wow, he was yeah. strangling him. Yes, I don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. I understand completely. The injustice happening by Mm. law enforcement coming in and he was unarmed because when we see cell phone video of black men oftentimes being shot in the back and women, of course, yeah, um, oftentimes being shot in the back as they're running away Mm -hmm. uh, and still people make excuses for it well, what was he doing or, you know, um, you know, don't, be, don't run if ever there was an excuse mm-hmm. for excessive police brutality, this may have been it. And the movie makes it clear there was no excuse for this, right. but yeah, I mean, you watch it. I mean, I've watched it now. I tried to make it, you know, because mm-hmm. I look at people who would look critically at this movie. It That's, makes things I, complicated. I honestly
1: had not, I don't know how I hadn't thought to the next point. Rittery Rahim would have killed Sal if he hadn't been stopped. So off the top of my head, as I'm just sort of processing it on the fly, what comes to mind is the movie, by being called Do the Right Thing, raises the question, what is the right thing? Yeah. Because Mookie doesn't ask that question. The mayor says, to just always do, it. do the right thing. Yeah. And he says, that's it? And he says, yes, I so, got it. I'm gone. Nobody's got it. So it's inviting the question, what is the right thing? And I think the movie more concretely answers what the wrong thing is to some degrees. Killing Rudy Rahim was the wrong
0: thing. Yeah. The police did the wrong thing. Yeah, no question about it. I hope my apprehension about
1: it is not at all. <laughs> but you're right. You're right that it adds a real complication. So I think then it's, it's a little bit of like Descartes where, okay, let me, let me find the thing I do know. We do know the police did the wrong thing. hmm So I kind of wonder, was there a point where the police didn't have to do the wrong thing? Of course. Right. Of course there was. So there could be a subtle sort of, here's how you do the right thing. Stop Radio Rahim from killing Sal without killing Radio Rahim. They got him off of Sal. And that's all you needed to do. (laughs) Arrest him for sure.
0: Yeah. And of course... With a lot of these scenes, you can keep backtracking in the movie and yes. just keep playing out how could this have gone differently? Right. Because, you know, Radio Rahim is so angry because of what Sal did mm-hmm. with his boombox. Mm-hmm. And Sal didn't really understand what that boombox meant to him. Right. Now, so that's Sal's fault. Then it's Radio Rahim's fault because he came in blaring that boombox. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sal called them the N word. Yes. And that shouldn't be. That's right. when the tables definitely turn, right there's still just sort of like you you just keep going back in yes. time, like you know and and also it's kind of like well, Sal did ask him not to do that, yeah, and he did it anyways. But Sal also didn't really do it in any way that seemed non-threatening. <laughs> right, right.
1: That wasn't escalating. So
0: that's the thing with this movie is you keep going back and back and back exactly. and back and you keep going back almost all the way to the beginning and you you start thinking about how could things have played out differently, Yeah, you know?
1: Sort of that question, where did this go wrong? Right. and It always kind of, has like a, well, it was wrong here. Well, that happened because of this. And that's where I feel like the the metaphor of the hot day, aside from just when it's hot, everybody's tense. Yeah. And as viewers watching all the sweat and all like the fans just kind of moving slowly, mm-hmm. not even being effective, just sort right. of being like, "Yeah, we're moving. That increases tension for us as an audience. But I think there's a metaphor to a hot day. And I think about like days where it's been over a hundred and it's too hot. Mm-hmm. And can I pinpoint the degree that the temperature reached where it became too hot, you know, and yeah. so like, definitely 104. That was too hot. But wasn't 103 also too hot? And didn't I feel very hot at 100? And why not? If it's 100 degrees, why not 99? What made 99 yeah. cooler and bearable? But 100 right. not. It's like, well, I don't know. Yeah, nothing. Right. And so like, it's hard to know how where to dial it back. To. Right. And and it, to. Or, or yeah. Or, or when to just declare it's too hot. Yeah. And. To a degree, it's, pun intended, it's, it's <clears throat> pointless to try to pinpoint. Yeah. That. Like if somebody said, oh, it's too hot today, it would be so pointless to say like, but when did you feel like it got too hot? You mm-hmm. know. And so it's similarly pointless to say, when did racial tension become too tense? Mm-hmm. It's right. pointless to ask, when did things go wrong? Pinpointing that does not change the fact that things are too tense and that things
0: have gone wrong. It, I, 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 yes, you're right where it becomes hard is when we read the news nowadays and we talk about issues of like social justice, you want to be able to know who should be brought to justice for this. And I, I'm not saying in do the right thing.
1: Well, since we can't pinpoint the cause of the escalation, we should not hold the police accountable for the tipping point Yeah, or even Mookie, you know, or the rioters or anything like that. But to like say we can't bring anybody to justice because we can't pinpoint the original blame to lay this on that's where it gets pointless Mm -hmm. you know and that is white people's main slipperiness with racism i didn't own slaves my family didn't own slaves yeah i'm not accountable for this i'm not racist i have a black friend i've never burned across you (laughs) know you know i don't use the n-word in that way they find these slippery things that Allow them to avoid blame, assuming that blame is the same as culpability, or that blame is the same as involvement, or that blame is the same as um, benefiting from a system. All it does is get into weeds that completely ignore the fact of things are wrong and people are hurting, people are being oppressed and people are oppressing, and we need to make that justice. Uh, happen. And I think that it feels implicit to the movie. And a a scene that's sort of a microcosm of that is the scene with Clifton, the the Larry Bird wearing white um, brownstone owner. If you watch the scene back, Clifton bumps him on the left shoulder and it's the outside of his right shoe that's scuffed. So Buggin' Out really should not be mad at Clifton because he didn't scuff his shoe. But Clifton is gentrifying mm-hmm. Bugging Out's neighborhood. Does Bugging Out have a reason to be mad at a white gentrifier? Right. Absolutely, he does. So, does the fact that the blame is misplaced change the fact that his anger is real? It doesn't. But if we were to walk that back, as is our sort of like tendency, we would then say Bugging Out is the one who is wrong in the situation. Clifton is vindicated. Clifton continue on bugging out, you're going to jail,
0: right? yeah, <laughs> where I think it's hard going back to the idea of radio Rahim strangling Sal. Yes, my sense of radio Rahim was he was kind of above it all. Mm. like he was almost like a prophet figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Radio Rahim has this sense of the world, and almost in his knuckles, he embodies Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. not not that not that Malcolm X is all hate, hey, right. and no, that's not course. what I mean. I know. I just mean that like I the fear. two dueling ideas. of oppression and the way to overcome Mm -hmm. that um and what you have is then this person kind of floating along but then bugging out is really kind of the one that instigates him Mm -hmm. and i don't want to say radicalized because it's not really a radicalization but he's the one that gets him more on that side of angry yeah um or hate or hate Mm -hmm. and you find out at the end well he's just as human as everybody else he's just as susceptible to getting uh, poked in just the right way that's just going to set him off and really dive down into that hate side of things. Which
1: is the worst you can say for every character in this movie. Exactly. You get that sense with the love and hate speech, but it's it's a far less straightforward speech than it seems.
2: The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand, Love, is finished. But hold on, stop the presses, the right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now, that's right. Yeah, ooh, it's a devastating right, and hate is hurt. Down, ooh, ooh, left hand, hey, KO'd by Love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate.
1: The end of that speech, if I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, and then he lets it hang there. Yeah.
0: That's, that's menacing. It's almost, it's almost foreshadowing, too. Right.
1: Yeah. What we see when we see Radio Rahim throughout the movie as that prophet figure is Radio Rahim loving people. I think this is a good time to bring in an email we got from Eric. Our, sure, our, yeah. Um, yeah, he made Listener. a really good point. He did. Um, but why don't you read what Eric said? Because sure. it, it's a, it, he picked up on something that I hadn't picked up on.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, this is from Eric. He said, Radio Rahim's speech about his love and hate brass knuckle rings is interesting, but I kept thinking he's walking around wearing street fighting weapons on his hands. And it doesn't matter if you get hit with the left hand or the right. The word on the thing doesn't matter. The effect will be the same devastation either way.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So there was something else that you that complicates the movie for you. Sure,
0: yeah, and a movie full of complications. The other thing that is uh, maybe extraordinary extraordinarily complicated me that I just don't know what to do with Mm -hmm. is the end where uh, the money with Mm -hmm. Sal and Mookie. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels like Mookie is sort of taking the high road and saying like, "This is what's owed to me." He even says like, "I owe you fifty bucks," Mm -hmm. but Sal drops the money and then Mookie picks it up, (laughs) so he takes the full five hundred dollars. What's What's that about? (laughs) Now, uh, <laughs> you, you, Maybe you, you, you might ha- bring something to this that I'm not thinking about. Like it, He seems very much principled in the sense of like, yeah. I'm owed 250. That's all I'm going to take. That's almost to me more complicated than why Mookie threw the trash can through the window.
1: <laughs> like, sure.
0: like, why is he taking that money?
1: <laughs> he, so he was, he was asked by a reporter at Cannes in 1989 about that. And they basically said Mookie would have had higher moral ground. And uh, Spike Lee said that would have been too easy. He, I think he said on that point he went back and forth on it, but he said at the end of the day he was writing about a real young kid in New York standing over two hundred dollars on the ground, thinking, "I got a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't know when I'm going to get work again. I need two hundred bucks." And it was more or less that simple. And for Spike Lee as a filmmaker, he was also sort of thinking what is the easy way out and how do I not do that?
0: And I think that is, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's such an extraordinary fidelity to a character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I think most writers and directors would allow for that character to have a moment. Especially if they're playing that character. Exactly. Yeah. So that's fine if we want to leave it at that, that that's the Mookie thing. It was true to the character that he took the money.
1: I mean, and I'm fine with that. I hate. I I often hate knowing what the director or author or whatever intended, because I'm sort of like, well, there could be an interesting debate to be had, but I there's also something. It's nice that the answer is something that still like it's not up for debate, but it's not an easy answer either. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It's not
0: one that just. And for some reason, it doesn't bother me when Spike Lee just kind of explains his movies. (laughs) It, it bothers me with other yeah, people. It doesn't but, bother me either. <laughs> but he's just kind of like this yeah, is why I met. You can do whatever you want. Stop that.
1: talking about mother. Uh, <laughs> but but it is something that's very hard to process. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that makes the end of the movie something that you just sit there going, I don't know what I just saw because yeah. n- nobody's doing Hollywood predictable things. Right. And does- everybody's doing very predictable human things.
3: My people, my people. What can I say? Say what a can. I saw it, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it, what I saw. Are we going to live together? Together are we going to live? This is your Mr. Senior Love Daddy talking to you from We Love Radio 108 FM on your dial. And that's the Triple Truth. Ruth. Today's weather...
1: I I feel like Mr. Senior Love Daddy, Samuel L. Jackson's radio DJ character, is a really interesting character. To me, and for what I process about the movie, I'm not definitively saying that this is the movie's thesis. But for me, the thesis-ish element that I really like come back to is when, after the riot, Mr. Senior Love Daddy says, Are we going to live together? Together are we going to live? And... The implications of that can be so, because like, is that question advocating separatism? Like, is it even possible for us to live together? To live, to survive in proximity this way. But then, so so, Mr. Senior Love Daddy, he also is presented sort of as this sage, this person like mother-sister, like Radio Rahim, who's above it, who is commenting on it. And that gets complicated when you see he can comment in his wisdom behind the glass. He's never outside his DJ booth. Mm -hmm. And he he is always separated from what's happening. And I paid attention this time to the hats that he's wearing, and they're all laid out in front of him in the opening scene. And three of them are sort of like either Afrocentric, one actually says the phrase Afrocentric on it, Or, like, sort of like Caribbean, it's got like shells and stuff on it. Um, So, three of the hats are like that. And three of the hats are what I would describe as colonizer hats. One's like a pith helmet, one's a Panama hat, and the other one's like a straw hat. That's like, sort of, if I saw that on the costume of a white person uh, colonizing someplace or of an overseer, I would not be surprised. Sure. And at various points throughout the movie, he wears those hats. And during the riot, the only time we see Mr. Senior Love Daddy.
0: When the fire hose. Is when the fire
1: hose sprays across his window and he takes off one of the colonizer hats. I don't know which one it is exactly. And he puts on one of the, like the Caribbean sort of like Like Island Rasta kind of. Yeah. And he's like, come on, come on. He's like angry. And I really think that there's a, an element in the even handedness of the movie to criticizing black people who separate themselves from the fight, who will put on that sort of, afrocentric caribbean whatever mm-hmm. african diaspora hat when it suits them but also when it is not a danger to them right and we'll put on the hat of the colonizer when it suits them all while staying behind the safety of their glass which is i think you know um it's something spike lee talked about again in another interview he's like i am yes i am that's he said that's why this is not a racist movie because i am I, I I'm hard on black people too, mm-hmm. and I think that Mr. Senior Love Daddy is an easy character for uh, me as a white person to connect with and try to anchor myself, try to yeah. orient myself, my myself in the movie through him because he's the one who does the roll call, like yeah, jazz musicians, hip hop musicians, yeah, yeah. Prince, like all that stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. black culture. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. like your why not celebrate that black appreciation. That? Yeah, exactly. I can that's get on February. That. That's yeah. February. <laughs> <laughs> and but he's also completely out of touch
0: well and also you know now that you're mentioning it like his whole character is a throwback mm-hmm. you know like it's sort of throwing back to this idea like when you watch american graffiti and there's like the wolfman yeah you know and it's all and even the music he plays all of it even for 89 all of it is at least like 10 to 20 years old yeah, and it's Radio Rahim with this boombox playing public enemies fight the power. You wouldn't hear fight the power on that radio station. Right. I don't get the sense you would. He's a, he's a character who seems to be respected in the community and people like him, mm-hmm. you know, um, but he does seem to be kind of living outside of what's going on, mm-hmm. outside of the contemporary. But even in American Graffiti, that's the function of the DJ. The DJ just kind of breaks up the movie mm-hmm. and gives you a chance to rest. And even in a party, the DJ is there yeah. to make sure you're having fun. Yeah. You know, set the mood. He's such a crucial part of the movie in a sense, because he, you do want some levity and some lightness to the movie, you know, yeah. and he provides it. Well, but, let's talk about that, because I think this is a really funny movie. Yeah, I do, too. That's why I think it's so interesting that my white culture, like, perception of spike lee was yeah. that he was humorless yes was that he was just an angry black dude like and then i watched do the right thing and i'm like you know this is a funny movie there is a
1: lightness to the early scenes right and even some like even after tension, like characters who had tense scenes before have funny scenes together later like that's something else that this movie makes this movie difficult is that the relationships between people are not one note it's not like there's only ever tension between Sal and uh, uh, Bugging Out, even. And that when Sal and Bugging Out are together, that's going to be a tense scene. Because that scene where Bugging Out pops up and says, Sal, we're going to boycott your fat pasta ass. And Sal's like, You got your boycott. I got your boycott right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a funny scene. Right. Even though those two characters aren't necessarily having fun in that scene, it's a funny scene. And Sal and Mookie, they can be at each other's throats at one point, and then they can have a really tender moment later. And it goes back and forth. But as far as funny scenes, for me, the funniest scene is the fire hydrant scene where they spray the guy's car with uh, the fire hydrant, Uh and he... They run away, and oh. then he tries to file a police report.
0: The, the mo thing, and the, the police, joke.
1: the police just are not taking him seriously. Uh-huh. And what's fascinating about that is that it shows that the relationship that the beat cops have to the neighborhood that is their beat is not only tense and right. only antagonistic. Right. That when this guy who is not a part of this neighborhood comes in and just interferes with what life is like there, those cops aren't going to let him do that. Mm-hmm. And right freaking hilarious yes the way that he's playing that straight and he's like did you get their names he's like they and joe where
2: are you going where's he going
0: did you happen oh. to catch the name of the suspect oh,
2: sir. Sir? Oh, sir what the fuck are you doing fuck that just, just calm down calm down my ass did you happen to catch the name of the fuck suspects? you their name mo and joe what do i know their names Moe and joe what sir oh joe what Moe and joe what mo and joe black how's that they're brothers sir yeah they're brothers yeah they're fucking brothers
1: but then you know the other cop goes to
0: yelling so the tension is definitely there. It is there but you're right it is that
1: primarily have- tension but you have that scene they have a, a familiarity with the, the neighborhood that they aren't going to let just anybody
0: come in and
1: infringe on right you know yeah
0: um are there other
1: scenes for you that are, uh, that
0: you think are funny i don't know i i remember just thinking mookie as a character was really funny like when he comes out and he's just like, hell no, to the, <laughs> yeah, to the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> <To> the- <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a comedic performance. I think Sweet Dick
1: Willie's funny. Yes, Robin Harris was the actor who played him, who actually died yeah. the next year. So oh, really? He, he, yeah, yeah, he was. He was pretty much no. a straight-up comedian, and you can kind of tell that he did not have a lot of onset
0: experience. <laughs> the number of times he looks directly at the camera, <laughs> um, but that those those three guys actually their banter is yeah. really funny. And but at the same time, there are times where their banter gets really serious yeah. and deep.
1: So it doesn't seem to have to work hard at its humor, but to be able to pull humor out at like any given moment that requires hard work Mm -hmm. that requires a good script that requires good knowledge of those characters Um, that we can laugh at Sal kind of like, you know, threatening bugging out, but then like rubbing his shoulder and you're sort of like, ah, that's Sal. Like we know enough about both of those characters at that point in the movie. And we also know, we feel like we know that much about probably 12 or 15 other
0: characters. Yeah. And that's crazy. So as we're kind of wrapping things up here, uh, I remember when we did our Vertigo episode, Yeah, we talked about it topping the sight and sound list. Our verdict on Vertigo was more of a great movie, classic movie, kind of done its job. Let's, move, let's on. move on. Let's pick a new movie for the top of the sight and sound list. Right. And you kind of just I mean, it was sort of like an offhand comment, but you said like, do the right thing. And it kind of at the time took me aback because I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe. Um, but as I've thought about that and seen the movie more I really think mm-hmm. if you were to hold a movie up as the number one film this is a a movie I feel like anybody who says they like movies needs to watch mm-hmm. and b even from just the standpoint of what is it as a movie it's everything you want mm-hmm in landmark movie making like it's you, you could break down the technical aspects we'd already talked about tight script tight direction you've got the auteur there because he produced right. and wrote and directed this thing you've got Star. amazing cast you've got yeah start started in it um you've got uh, great editing you've got great cinematography you've got mm-hmm. great wardrobe as you mentioned like the elements are all there of a great movie and it's exactly what you want in a movie in that it is entertaining. You're not bored right. or you're not feeling like right. this is just a heavy movie you've got to slog through because right. it's important. Yeah. It's actually an entertaining movie. It, it's important. Its importance
1: never makes it vital. Yeah. Like, as I mean, vital in like vitality, right? Like it makes the movie feel alive. Like yeah. The
0: movie continues to sort of like crackle. Yes. Um, It does everything you want a movie to do thematically, where Mm -hmm. it gives you you, countless things to wrestle with, with Mm -hmm. no easy answers. And then you add on to it um, just the way it married other forms of art within it. You've got Public Enemy in there, Mm -hmm. and the way it used that, and the -hmm. way that in its time, which is exactly what you want of a landmark film, is to at least say in its time it was breaking new ground and was cutting edge. It checks off all
1: of those boxes, you know? How many times though do you see a groundbreaking movie that you could say, I can see why that would have been impressive then. But now having seen what came after it, it's not so impressive. That's not true. With do the right thing. No. Um, and I, I mean, we, we it said, it only grows. Right. Yeah. We said in the intro that it changed the landscape of American cinema. I wasn't being flippant or hyperbolic there. Like, Looking back, American cinema is different after Do the Right Thing. Mm -hmm. One thing that you can point to is that when people talk about race in movies and Oscars so white and that sort of thing, Do the Right Thing keeps coming up. I'm going to steal a little thing from John Green and his podcast Anthropocene Reviewed and say... Great podcast, by the way. It is. Um, Favorite fact that I wasn't able to fit into the conversation um, is that at the Oscars, that Do the Right Thing was um, not nominated for Best Picture at... Um, Kim Basinger read the nominees and gave out the award for Best Picture and went off script and chastised the Academy for not nominating Do the Right Thing as in Best Picture. And she was banned from the Oscars um, until LA Confidential. L.A. Confidential when she won. And that is an even more damning um, mark against the Academy that not only did they not nominate Do the Right Thing for Best Picture, but they punished
0: a woman who who
1: brought it up, yeah, who who dared to sully the night by um, calling them on it.
0: Miss Daisy was clutching her pearls. (laughs) She sure was.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, There's no need to say Best best Buds on Um, this. Um, Although I feel like after this, in keeping with the movie, we should say it's complicated because well
0: that's true well everything, it, everything is everything is complicated um, which uh since we can agree to that ooh good point We're best buds We're best buds wow
1: we uh, we think that this movie should top sight and sound list well yeah if I we just can... checked it it's not even on it on the list are you kidding no come on man. you would be surprised on, it... at how unsurprised you are by that list
0: is it is it on the AFI list of 100 movies 100 years, 100 movies? Because it would have been within that century. I am going to bet that no. I think it. I think that list came out way too soon. 2007. Too close to do the, well, they, right did the they did the... Oh, 96. It made it? It made it. Okay. 96. Hey, at least it made it. Ahead of Blade Runner, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Toy Story, and Ben-Hur. Well, before we officially wrap this up i do want to mention that uh, another one of our listeners called in and left um, a really good message uh as after his sort of his first reactions after watching do the right thing for the first time and it was a little bit too long to kind of weave into the episode um so we're just going to kind of tag it on to the end of this episode so stick around Mm -hmm. through all of our stupid banter or just Mm -hmm. fast forward through it if you want to and uh take a listen to his uh thoughts on do the right thing it's a good listen
1: yeah, and so uh, now let's talk about what uh, we're going to do for next month.
0: Yeah, and sadly it, it will not be another movie that we think should top the sight and sound list. Right, it's a movie I have not seen. Me neither, but... So maybe it will... Hey, I, who knows? Who knows? Although,
1: uh, would they put a documentary... We're doing a documentary next, right? Right, I mean, should we just jump? We usually cut. We I know, we usually just... cut. <laughs> oh, one, it's I gotta funny. get going. Yeah. And so, two... Like, we usually cut because we have to figure this out right we have we have it figured out
0: folks right this has never happened before by the way no. so
1: we've got we've got this month and next month little we can had we, them we had them right. planned in July
0: little can we still be can we little still be friends the behind the scenes yeah um, usually when we say let's talk about what we're gonna discuss in our next movie there's actually a cut there and, and we, we talk for like an hour, hour about what we're gonna <laughs> do we're in the next episode two. and then we roll the tape again uh, I call it tape because that's sure well because about. we've got a reel to reel here <laughs> So I get the tape wound up again yeah, and, uh, and hit that dub button right. and, uh, and, and then we finally record our banter and talk about the next movie. Yeah. But in this case, way back in June, when we did all that jazz, we said, let's do Do the Right Thing. And by the way, I've got these two other movies we could we do, do right. so that when we came back, we wouldn't even need to do that. Cut. Much to the chagrin of a listener who tried to suggest something for September. Yeah, which we never get. And finally someone suggested something and we yeah. had to kind of turn it down. And I felt I felt bad about that. But there was some kind of muse happening or some kind of... Yeah. Something was happening. We, we, can't, were coming once, up with, yeah. we can't cut that you know, momentum of just coming up with movies left and right. Because it doesn't...
1: Muse, once the muse arrives, we got to grab that hand right. and let, let the muse take us. So, next September. M- next month, September, uh, we're going to be... I forget. Do we have even a reason? Like, is there a tie-in? A couple. So this is
0: also 1989. So it's got go. the anniversary going. Anniversary, we Sticking have eighty-nine. We have not really. We've done a few documentaries. We did American Movie. Mm-hmm. We did Great Gardens. Right. We haven't done a lot of documentaries, and we also we haven't done any Michael Moore at all, or right. talked about Michael Moore and right. his thing. It's certainly important to documentary filmmaking. Yes. But it's pretty polarizing, and, and not it, just politically. Is it, almost is it
1: important? In, in uh, it's important in a couple of ways. Yeah, Michael Moore's uh, impact on documentaries,
0: right? So it, you know, it's polarizing in the political sense, but it's also polarizing in should a documentary do this, yes. or is it bordering on propaganda? You right. know, that kind of thing. We are going to look at his debut documentary, his first one, which is uh, pretty, you know, it, it's well respected. With, critically, yeah. um, it tops a lot of lists of documentaries everyone should mm-hmm. see, and it's a uh, Roger and Me. I've never seen it. You've never seen it. Although I have seen a lot of other Michael Moore.
1: I wouldn't say I've seen a lot. I've seen Bowling for Columbine. Okay.
0: You see, Secco? Nope. Fahrenheit 911. I think so. Well, and that's it. It might be worth it to catch up on a little bit more. I
1: might have seen Fahrenheit 911. That's how much I can say. Okay, I've seen Bowling for
0: Columbine and maybe Fahrenheit 9/11. Okay, well, I've seen a lot of Michael Moore you actually. Have? But anyways. Because we've never seen it, because it is an important documentary, we're going to watch it. We're going to talk about Michael Moore's thing. My, um, my question will be, because he deals with things that are so topical to their time, you know, how how entertaining is this going to be for us to watch yeah. a movie that's now 30 years old, right. but very of its time. It's going to be, be referencing people that we would have known, would yeah. have been up on. Right. Uh, I don't know. Well, I don't know if I have any banter in me. I don't know either. It's been a long... This was a long conversation. We've been talking... I mean, you have, the, you have the
1: timer there. Two hours and 48 minutes. Two hours and 48 minutes. And you expect banter on top of that? No. No. I, that you know, is I not... Just, it is, I don't, it I don't, is, I don't it it have is, the energy. It is, it is 10, to, 10 to midnight. I don't have the energy. I really don't. I'm i i am
0: drumming up some energy for incense. Well, yeah, you're pretty angry right now. With the idea of uh, banter. I know something that not any one of our listeners has ever asked for by the way
1: no we give it to you but we do it unasked unpaid for and you still we presume expect Expect it it.
0: yeah which is because it lives up to some formula you have in your mind of how this show works you think that's how we should end it we don't know
1: that for sure but we feel it we've decided that's how that's how we end it and that's on you. I am not going to make any attempts. At banter? Banter, hilarity, improvisation.
0: No, we did exactly what we were contractually obligated to do. Right. Talk about this movie. Right. We talked about it way longer than contractually obligated. Honestly, yeah. We're going to put it for overtime. Review the next movie. That's it. Which we did. We did it. Um, then there's this assumed banter, right. but which we've been happy to meet you. It's it's but, but on a night like tonight, not that's do it. super late. We just don't have the energy.
1: So thanks for listening. There are a lot of ways to get in touch with us. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. So let's just run those down. So we've got some Facebook action going on. <laughs> you thought that was an yeah, attempt at oh, banter. Man. Yeah. <laughs> this is weird
3: banter. <laughs> All right, let's, going let's, for. Get,
0: let's get this out of the way. So we got Facebook. Can we still be friends podcast? Yep. Got the website. Can we still be net. Yep. Got the email feedback. Can we still be friends.net? Yep. yep. Uh, you can give us a call 847-306-9532 is where you can send those messages. Or do what Andrew did and record some voice. Yep. Uh, like uh, what do you call them? Recordings. Uh, recordings. Like record some on voice, voice recordings. Recordings
1: and um, uh, email them to us. At I think feedback. this is this is bordering on it?
0: banter just because we're so tired and can't talk. Yeah. All right. So hopefully you did the right thing and watched do the hey. right thing. And uh, then you've got to do one for the next <laughs> one. <laughs> right. So uh, I'll ask if you've seen Roger and me, and you'll say, Roger that. <laughs> Roger and me have been seen. Oh my gosh. That one is the <laughs> worst one. I'm tired. You will ever. I'm very tired. Thanks. I want to ask someone, did you see Roger and me? And they say, Roger that. <laughs> <laughs> Roger and me has been Roger seen. Roger and me has been seen. <laughs> Well, that one will not work as a tagline for the movie. That's true. Um, Well, if I think of something... I'm literally packing up. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) We're done. We're done here. We're done here. So uh, anyways... Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Appreciate Uh, it. Uh, We're going to cut this down to something listenable. Um, We'll catch you next month for Roger and me. Roger. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Wrap it up. Roger that.
3: Greetings, Nate and Ryan. This is Andrew. I just finished watching Do the Right Thing for the very first time. I texted Nate, letting him know that I finished it and that my immediate reaction was simply sadness. Uh, The way the heat built and the emotions built, you could see what was coming and you still didn't want it to happen. Uh, the way that this was written, there isn't really a huge protagonist. The protagonist of Spike is a relatively selfish dude. And Danny Aiello's character, his pride and his, his love of family and his uh, persistence to be in the place is certainly admired and yet his inability to actually love the people in the community allows it to spill over. Everybody, everybody in this movie has big old walls of pride, and they lead with that pride. Some characters, obviously, more than the next. Um, I'm going to have to really think long and hard uh, and really mine this movie for all that it's got, but... The contemporary comparison with this right now, it may have been made in 1989. That may have been 30 years ago. But it does not seem all that uh, far away. Sadly, it seems like something that could happen today. The political climate in our country, uh, the foolish and racist words that are constantly coming from the leader of our country. Um, it it feels like these are things that are stoking the fire and where it is moving constantly, slowly, but surely to this end that none of us want. And I'm just, I'm sad, but I beg for more and more Christians to step in and act like Aussies. Character, to act like the mayor, to step in, to bring wisdom, to encourage peace. Uh, I certainly have hope, but Spike captured just a day in the life, and uh, at least where I am today, sadness is kind of my remaining thought. There's another aspect that I really appreciate. It doesn't come across as a movie that has all the answers it doesn't come across like spike has said everyone in america is doing it wrong and what we need to do is this it actually leaves us in the midst of the tension between the fists of radio rahim between love and hate because they pit martin luther king jr and malcolm x two wise leaders offering different solutions, and you get to the end and you say, well, what was better? I don't know. We're stuck in the tension. I thoroughly am excited to see or hear rather how y'all break this down and what you pull from it. Thanks, gentlemen.